Hey there, friends. David Lightbringer here with some actual breaking Song of Ice and Fire news. That's right. Not fake breaking news like all the videos about the Jon Snow show trailer that does not exist, by the way. It's a lot of videos about something that doesn't exist. Real news, and it's regarding the Aegon's Conquest show, which has been in development at HBO. And now, although it hasn't been greenlit like A Night of the Seven Kingdoms show has been, which is the Duncan Egg show, it now has a very in-demand writer, Matson Tomlin, attached to it. HBO is partnering with Matson Tomlin to write and develop Aegon's Conquest. Matson is writing the upcoming Batman 2 movie with Robert Pattinson, and he's already mixing it up online with the fans like a sport, so that's fun. But the big news here is more or less that this announcement means there's some momentum behind this show, some new momentum, and it's looking like something that will probably happen. Actor Harry Goodwin. Hey guys, post-production LML. Uh, Harry Goodwins with an S. Harry Goodwins who we can't help but notice looks like a very hunky Aegon the Conqueror, just happened to post a Muck's Aegon the Conqueror artwork on his Instagram right after the Matson Tomlin news broke, so take that however you want. Reading Rhaegar is going to be crushed, though. I know he was really hoping for the part of Aegon. Anyway, this is all very exciting, but there's one giant, huge question. I know it's a five questions video, but there's one overarching question for the show, which is where's the drama gonna come from? I mean, on House of the Dragon, we have dragons and compelling characters on both sides of a war. So there's a lot of drama, even though, you know, people who've read Fire and Blood know the approximate outcome. The conquest, however, is really just three big battles, all of which the Targaryens win because they're the only people with dragons. And also because the Gardeners and Lannisters and other Westermen decided to fight dragons, in a big dry wheat field, which became known as the Field of Fire. But for the most part, it actually didn't matter who opposed the Targaryens or where. Apart from the Dornish and their ability to sort of just hide in caves when the dragon lords came by, the Targaryens really did just kind of steamroll over all their opposition and conquer Westeros in about a year and a half. And then after that, only a couple of things of note happened for the next four decades or so. So where's the drama going to come from? Obviously, we'll look forward to seeing what Matson Tomlin and George Martin and the rest of the writing team can cook up. But right now, I've brought five big questions to the table to get us started thinking about the possibilities. This was a lot of fun to do, and I'm actually looking forward to the show more now after having done this exercise. So let's get rolling, and I hope you enjoy the video. Question number one for Aegon's Conquest, and by the way, it really shouldn't be called Aegon's Conquest since it was accomplished by all three Targaryen siblings, but I digress. Question number one, will there be tension between the Conquerors slash what will their interpersonal dynamic be like? These are dragon lords with huge egos and also dragons, by the way, so we shouldn't assume that they're going to get along and see eye to eye on absolutely everything. After all, we know that Valerians and Targaryens in general can't be told. And once they bond with a dragon, they become more bold. Hey, it rhymed. Sorry, I didn't mean to, but there it is. Now, I want to stress, this does not have to be artificial conflict. It doesn't have to be like the Sansa Arya thing near the end of Game of Thrones. And it doesn't have to be playing into the sort of sexist trope of having two women fight over the man. There's definitely some middle ground between that and also the idea that all three of these individuals are individuals with their own personalities. And for the most part, I don't think this would be the two queens fighting over Aegon, but rather 
all three of them potentially disagreeing or having different opinions about how to run the new kingdom that they just created. And in fact, we know that they all did govern. Aegon spent a lot of time out on royal progress and left the governance of the realm to Rhaenys and Visenya. So they were all making governance decisions and then probably having opinions about what the other one did uh, while the others were away. And then during the war, we know that all three of the conquerors went different places and faced different challenges. Now, as far as we know, Visenya and Rhaenys in particular are very different people. Visenya is described as harsh and austere, while Rhaenys, of course, is merry and fond of singers and also loves flying and spends more time flying than either of her two siblings. Visenya apparently thought that Rhaenys' singers were foolish. So that's obviously not only a difference in lifestyle, but potentially a, a criticism of the other's choices. And then we see as far as how they settled the kingdom afterwards, how they handled decisions, in general, Rainey's was known for making marriage pacts. Visenya tends to come down on the side of fire and blood. So good cop, bad cop a little bit. Now, it is clear that Aegon did prefer Rainey. So it's said that Aegon wed his older sister, Visenya, for duty and his younger sister, Rainey's, for love. And of course, hearing me say that, you might think of the the saying that runs through Jon Snow's chapters about how love is the death of duty and how these things can be in conflict sometimes. So we've got the two sisters identify with these two different ideas. And then it's noted that Aegon spent 10 nights with Rhaenys for every one with Visenya. Although when he was away from Rhaenys, apparently she was hanging out with lots of other handsome singers and young nobles and things. So they're Targaryens. Don't expect them to be chased. You know what I mean? And then it's also noted in Fire and Blood that uh, when Aegon put Visenya in charge of building King's Landing, he then went to Dragonstone and it was potentially said that he was doing that to avoid her. Although who knows if that's true. Interestingly, Aegon himself is kind of a mystery wrapped in an enigma riding a dragon. We don't know much about him. We know more like what he did, but not as much about what he was thinking or feeling or what his motivations were. Although we do now know that prophecy and the end times was part of his motivation. We don't know how he felt about that. And I'm going to talk more about the prophecy in a minute, but it should be noted that Aegon is one of those doesn't participate in tourneys Targaryens. So potentially he's a more serious person. And that makes me wonder if maybe he's a bit like Rhaegar. You know, is he sad? Is he melancholy? Is he moody? Is he reluctant? Is he burdened by the weight of fate and destiny? One thinks potentially so. And then lastly, on the dynamic of the Conquerors, uh, there's that one time that Visenya cut Aegon's face to win an argument. That's right, it was to prove that Aegon's guards were slow, that they needed to make a king's guard. But it's kind of an extreme way to win an argument. She cut his face with a Valerian steel sword. Like, how... What if she had missed a little bit? What if he can't smile anymore on one side of his face? How did Aegon feel about that? Maybe they're just, you know, this is warrior culture and it wasn't that big a deal. Or maybe it traumatized. Maybe, <laughs> how long has she been bullying you, Aegon? <laughs> it's okay, this is a safe place. You could tell us. All right, question number two. Will they cast me reading Rhaegar as Aegon the Conqueror? I mean, I really am the obvious choice. I have the hair... The charisma, the far-off gaze. That's just the ring light reflecting on your glasses. What? And I think that Harry Goodwin guy got the part. Harry who? That can't be right. I'm sure HBO got my tape. Rhaegar, I don't know, man. This guy is a real actor and... What do you mean, Adams a real and... actor? Look, just do a good job on the script and maybe you'll turn some heads. Oh, yes. Well, <clears throat> 
Last week, Dave told you about our newest sponsor, World Anvil, makers of the very best world-building, writing, and game-mastering desktop software in existence. He did a splendid job. Hey, thank you. No problem. And since he's a writer, he talked about how writers can make use of World Anvil's interactive maps and custom timelines to plot events across time and space. But since I am a gamer... I didn't know you were a gamer. Yes, well, we had a lot of time to pass at the Tower of Joy where everyone else was off warring. I will tell you that with over 45 supported gaming systems, including D&D 5e, and the ability to create your own system, World Anvil provides the ideal solution for GMs to plan, play, and present their adventures and campaigns. And for the players like me, don't hate the player. World Anvil has the most extensive character management you can find, with character sheets, journals, inventory management, spellbook, and more. I'm particularly fond of the spellbook, of course. World Anvil really does have everything a player needs to get lost in their characters. Like me. I'm, I believe I am lost in several layers of character. To get started now with a 51% discount, simply go to worldanvil.com and use the promo code DAVID. And now back to David's video about how similar I am to Aegon the Conqueror. That's not what it's about. Alright, question number two for real this time. Uh, what effect will Aegon's prophecy have on the story? One imagines it will play a prominent role. It is Aegon's prophecy. And the whole point of it is that this is partly why they conquered Westeros. So, a few questions. What's the whole thing? Why didn't they write it on paper? One assumes to keep it secret, of course. But, yeah, where did the whole tradition of inscribing things on Valerian steel knives come from? Elric of Melnibody, like I've said many times, but, you know, in-universe, where did it come from? When did Aegon have the prophecy, and how long, you know, were they planning to conquer Westeros? A big question I have is, did his sisters also have prophetic dreams, or did Aegon have to convince them? Was it Visenya's prophecy, and it just got called Aegon's prophecy? This is something... Uh, myself and many people wondered when we first heard about it, was it Visenya really does seem like the one, you know? But of course, any Targaryen can potentially have dragon dreams, so one wonders, yeah, did they all have dreams, or was it just Aegon and then he had to sort of convince his sisters? Or maybe Visenya had to talk him into understanding what it meant and treating it credibly, who knows? Are there perhaps older Valerian prophecies involved that laid a precedent for Aegon's prophecy and for them understanding what it meant? Does this go back to Daenys the Dreamer? One wonders, because of course her dreams and prophecies, not only did she foresee the doom, there's an entire book written of her dreams and prophecies, signs and portents, which is of much importance. And one wonders, you know, is there the groundwork or the precedent for Aegon's prophecy in signs and portents? And will it be just sitting on the coffee table at Dragonstone? What is the mix? And I know we're, this is more than five questions. These are sub-questions under the big questions. Many, many questions. Um, what is the mix of motivations for the conquerors? Obviously, the prophecy is a big part, but were they also driven by pride, ambition, greed, lust for power, glory, vengeance, in fact, because, of course, we have Argilac and black hair and kind of flipping the bird to the Targaryens right before the conquest? And then final prophecy question, this is perhaps the biggest one. Will it be discussed when Torrin Stark kneels to Aegon and his sisters at the Trident? I made a video about this, Aegon's Prophecy, Why Torrin Knelt, so check that out. But I'm not the only one to think that this is partly the reason why this all happened. And we look forward to seeing that play out on screen. Obviously, this will probably be a big part of the show. 
So we could definitely see this fleshed out. The character of Brandon Snow. Was there sexual tension between Aegon and Torin? I'm just kidding. The, uh, this artwork, though, I mean, it's just very suggestive. Why Torin knelt? Don't think about it too hard. All right, third question. How much pre-conquest setup will we do? And this ties into the question of how long the show will run. How many seasons? One imagines they might follow the House of the Dragon template and have one season of solid build-up before the actual war, which would probably create at least a three-season show, I would think. The first season would give us a chance to set up the dynamic between the conquerors, show us what's going on with the prophecy, and the rest of their preparations and motivations for the conquest. One imagines we could see the thruple wedding of the conquerors, right? Why not, why not show us that? Seems like fun for the set designers and costume designers and so on. That's right, I'm thinking about you costume co. Give us a Targaryen thruple wedding. We might see the conquerors claiming their dragons, or at least uh, Aegon. Balerion was not hatched out of Aegon's cradle. Balerion is from Valeria, over a hundred years old by the time Aegon claims him. So, in fact, the more I think about that, how would you not show Aegon claiming Balerion, the Black Dread, on the Dragonmont? Like, Yes, if we're going to do the show, we've got to get that. We might see the creation of the Painted Table, which Fire and Blood tells us was made years before the conquest, quote-unquote. We also know that Aegon and Visenya, at the least, visited Old Town and the Citadel, as well as the Arbor and possibly the Westerlands. And at some point, just a couple years before the conquest, Aegon actually took Beleriand over to Essos to handle some shit, which entailed burning a Volantine fleet, to help Tyrosh and Pentos in their war against Volantis and Lys. And then there's the question of Ori's Baratheon. This could have been his own main question, really. I mean, this guy is a total mystery, said to be a bastard brother of the Conquerors. He's got this b very distinct black hair, looks totally different from them. Where'd he come from? Who were his parents? We have no idea. He just appears in the record, so... <laughs> did, did, did Visenya like him? Does Rhaenys like him? How do they feel about him? Where does he live? What is the name Baratheon and where did that come from? Is that like a Valerian god or a city in Valeria? We just, we have no idea. So Ori's Baratheon, that's definitely something we could spend some time with in season one. And then we have uh, some other pre-conquest Dragonstone Targaryen culture uh, that we could see, such as the fact that the mother of the Conquerors was Valena Valarion, who was already half Targaryen on her mother's side. So the Targaryens and Valarions have been intermarrying for generations before the conquest, which means that we should see some House Valarion presence. I brought up Danny's the Dreamer a moment ago, and again, I would just say, what's her sort of presence in the lives of the Conquerors? How much are they thinking and talking about her? Is the book on the coffee table? And might not we start the show, perhaps, with a flashback of Dany's, you know, foreseeing the doom, much in the way that we had the Great Council of 101 IC with King Jaehaerys as a little flashback event to kick off House of the Dragon. Daenerys' dream and Aenar moving the Targaryens to Dragonstone happens about a century before the conquest, and that's really where the Targaryen story starts, so one imagines it will be a factor on the show. And then finally, and this will lead to our next big topic question, the first season will give us a chance to set up and get to know all of the people that the Targaryens conquest, right? The Westerosi, such as Black Heron and Arglac the Arrogant, who are the first two lords that come into conflict with the Targaryens. So, question four. What about the Westerosi, the conquered? Well, they weren't all conquered. We'll get to that in a second. Some of them got promotions out of all this. But first we have Black Heron, 
who seems like the least sympathetic foe of the Targaryens. We could definitely see him set up as the villain, if you will, of part of the story. He's a dastardly dude with a dastardly big castle, Harrenhal, and obviously the burning of Harrenhal is going to be one of the climactic moments of this show. And then in contrast to Black Heron, we have the more sympathetic and honorable enemy of Argilac, the arrogant, uh, the Storm King, the last Durandan Storm King. He's, he's arrogant and recalcitrant, but in the way that you respect. And his final battle of the last storm against Ori's Baratheon and Rhaenys and Meraxes in the rain is a pretty cool battle. I think they'll make the most of that. And it's not just Argilac. His daughter, Argella, is a pretty important character. Uh, before the war ever starts, Argilac proposes marriage between Argella and Aegon, even though he already has two sister wives. And Aegon's refusal of the offer and counterproposal to marry uh, Ori's Baratheon and Argella causes Argilac the Arrogant to cut the hands off of Aegon's messenger and begins their feud. So Argella's right in the middle of that, and then of course, after Ori's Baratheon and the Targaryens beat Argilac the Arrogant, Ori's then, of course, takes Argella as his wife and then adopts the sigil and the house words and the regalia and the trappings and the symbolism of the Durandan kings and becomes the House Baratheon that we know and love. So this is definitely going to be a big part of making this show interesting and compelling. We'll be giving us characters on the non-Targaryen side that we identify with and sympathize with. That's going to create drama. And so a couple of other characters who could fit the bill... Uh, we have Edmund Tully, and I just mentioned Black Heron. Black Heron conquers the Riverlands just before the conquest, and the Riverlanders don't like it. So when Aegon invades, the Riverlanders actually rise in revolt against Black Heron, and that's how the Tullys become Lords Paramount of the Trident. So this is interesting because it sort of adds nuance to the narrative of the Targaryens being conquerors of Westeros, right? In this case, Black Heron was an oppressive ruler of the Riverlands, which Aegon helped overthrow. And Aegon and the Targaryens are, of course, famous for uh, leaving the local lords with a lot of local decision-making and their customs in place and stuff like that. So the Riverlanders ended up a lot better under the Targaryens than they did under Black Heron. Now, the other great house that got a promotion, a huge promotion, wasn't a great house at all when this war started, and that's House Tyrell. They were originally the stewards of the gardeners at Highgarden. That's why they're called up-jump stewards, and the rest of the houses in the Reach resent them 300 years later, because the gardeners all perished at the Field of Fire. And then Aegon lifted up the Tyrells and made them lords of Highgarden and lords paramount of the Reach. So now all these other older houses in the Reach that are connected to Gartha Green now have to do homage to the Tyrells. And that's how we get the Tyrells of the modern story. So that gives us an opportunity to have gardener characters. You know, if the house gardener's gonna perish, then we should get to know them before they vanish from the pages of history. And it figures that we might get to know one of those Tyrells that rises to power. The Lannisters are also at the Field of Fire. They don't get wiped out, and they kneel in submission and remain lords of Casterly Rock or whatever. And since Aegon and Visenya may have visited Casterly Rock and Lannisport before the war, maybe we'll see a Lannister main character. Now, I just mentioned the Tyrells, and of course, one of the best Tyrell characters is the Queen of Thorns, Olena Tyrell. And the Conquest has a character that's like Olena Tyrell only more so, and that's Maria Martell, the Yellow Toad of Dorne. Maria Martell, the Yellow Toad, is the blind octogenarian princess, ruling princess of Dorne, and she has a completely epic scene with Rhaenys, which I will just quickly read for you. I will not fight you, 
Princess Maria told Rhaenys. Nor will I kneel to you. Dawn has no king. Tell your brother that. I shall, Rhaenys replied. But we will come again, princess, and the next time we shall come with fire and blood. Your words, said Princess Maria, ours are unbowed, unbent, unbroken. You may burn us, my lady, but you will not bend us, break us, or make us bow. This is Dawn. You are not wanted here. Return unto your peril. Presumably, Maria will be played by an old British lady and not a middle-aged man doing a Monty Python old lady voice. But that's what you get here. So there you go. And of course, the final non-Targaryen main character would be Torrin Stark. And also Brandon Snow, actually, who's maybe a little cooler. Because he wants to sneak across the river and kill the dragons with weirwood arrows. And where did he get that idea? And can weirwood arrows kill dragons? That doesn't happen, though, of course. Instead, Torrin sends Brandon Snow across the river at night to parlay with Aegon. So it's actually Brandon Snow and Aegon who talk potentially about the prophecy and hammer out whatever agreement that Aegon and Torrin sort of publicly you know, have a ceremony for the next day. So Torrin Stark and Brandon Snow and whatever other Starks are hanging out, they'll certainly be very important characters. And one imagines we might see them introduced early on to build all of that up so that the submission of the North means something. And then final big question is how much of the post-conquest timeline will they include? And the major things we're talking about here are Aenys' birth in 3 AC, Magor's birth in 7 AC. Hey guys, post-production, Dave Lightbringer buzzing in with a ah, fake news buzzer. Um, so Aenys was born in 7 AC, Magor was born in 12 AC. Uh, that's what you get for not looking things up before you do the script. Back to the video. And by the way, there's a possibility that neither one of those are Aegon's sons. That's right. So Visenya, it took her, as I just said, at least seven years to have a son, and this was a cause of much frustration, especially after Aenys was born. Visenya is said to dabble in the dark arts, and it's said that potentially she used some kind of magic to get herself pregnant. And then we have Magor, who is abnormally huge and strong, but could only have just tons of lizard babies. So there's a whole Magor the mule, Visenya the gecko theory there uh, about magical Targaryen reproduction. I should make a video about that. And then, of course, Rhaenys, as I mentioned, was said to dally with other singers and handsome nobles and things. And Aenys is, I don't know if you want to think this way, but Aenys is very not like Aegon. He's a weak Targaryen, so maybe he's not Aegon's son. I don't really know how much water that holds. The main thing is that Rhaenys is said to have, you know, slept with other people. So maybe they'll do something with that. Uh, and then the other thing we have is, of course, Rhaenys' death, which is in 9 AC down in Dorne. The Targaryens don't conquer Dorne for many years, of course, but they keep trying. That's why Nana Vagar is confused about how many wars there are in Dorne and have we conquered Dorne yet. And I actually imagine that they might move Rhaenys' death up from 9 AC to like just after the war, or maybe even at the end or during the war, so that that's included. I, I really don't know how they're going to keep the show running 
too much after the conquest. There's just, just not a lot that happens until Aegon's death in 37 AC. And after that, it gets very interesting because Aenys takes the throne and a bunch of rebellions spring up like weeds, little trees and weeds, and he doesn't handle it well. And Visenya and Maegor are brooding over on Dragonstone the whole time. And then five or six years later, he dies and Maegor takes the throne and they really should do a Sons of the Dragon show, to be honest. There is, it's one of the best stories in Fire and Blood and there's a lot of natural conflict. And there's Reyna, who's a great character, and young Jaehaerys, and Maegor's War with the Faith, which is really interesting. So who knows? We're, we're going to do Aegon's Conquest first, obviously, but maybe we'll get a Sons of the Dragon show at some point, too. And there you have it. Leave your thoughts and comments below in the video. Please like and subscribe if you've enjoyed this presentation. And I'll see you again very soon with more Song of Ice and Fire and Hot Dragon material. Oh, yes, and uh, everybody cross your fingers for Rhaegar. Getting to play Egg on the Conqueror. I really think that would break the fourth wall, but... Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.